The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society Blue Journal podcast. I would like to introduce Dr. Benjamin Singer, Senior Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellow at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Dr. Singer. Thanks, Yasha. Hello, and I'd like to welcome you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Ronald Crystal, who is Professor of Medicine and Genetic Medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College of Cornell University. Dr. Crystal, who delivered the Amberson Lecture in May 2014, has written a perspective appearing in the Blue Journal entitled Airway Basal Cells, the Smoking Gun of COPD. Welcome, Dr. Crystal. Thank you. Uh, to start, briefly comment on the fundamental role of the airway epithelial basal cell population in the early pathogenesis of COPD. Just give us a broad overview. Well, the airways, as we know, are dichotomous branching structures of covered by the epithelium, and they're basically are four major cell types. The dominant cell type is the ciliate cell, and the next is the secretory cells, and together the ciliate and secretory cells provide the mucociliar escalator uh, that's so critical for uh, lung function and, and lung defense. There's then another columnar cell, which is somewhat undifferentiated, and then finally there are the basal cells. The basal cells are sitting on the basement membrane, and they are the cells that are the stem progenitor cells of all of the other cells. So the basal cells then lead to these undifferentiated columnar cells, which then differentiate into the ciliated cells or into the secretory cells. So without the basal cells, you can't continue to replenish the airway epithelium. So from normal turnover of the airway epithelium or following injury to the airway epithelium, the basal cells are absolutely critical in terms of uh, the role that they play in terms of all the other cell types. Thank you for that overview. So, so just to take it back, I'm always interested in the genesis of very important discoveries. So if, if you would, talk a bit about how initial histological observations led to the work that you described in your Blue Journal perspective. Well, we all know that today, uh, in 2014, that smoking is bad and causes uh, lung disease, COPD, lung cancer. But back in the 1950s, in that period, that data was just beginning to uh, become apparent. And one of the critical series of papers was from Auerbach and colleagues in the New England Journal, where they published uh, the histology of the lung in smokers. And one of the fundamental observations that they made is that the first thing that's seen in the cigarette smoker, this is the guy who's standing outside the building now smoking a cigarette, who we think clinically is absolutely normal, but it turns out the histology of the airway is abnormal, and the first thing that's seen is hyperplasia, or increased numbers of these basal cells. And if you had asked me back in the 1980s when I was at NIH and running the pulmonary branch of the pathogenesis of smoking-induced COPD, I would have answered and said it's inflammation. And of course, inflammation plays a critical role in terms of the pathogenesis of COPD, but it's not the first. What happens first, as Auerbach uh, pointed out in his studies and, and many others after that, is there are changes to the airway epithelium, and that precedes any of the other abnormalities. And it makes sense because the airway epithelium is what takes the brunt of the stress of all the things that are in cigarette smoke, 
but it was really that paper and several papers like it that got us thinking about the fundamental uh, role that the basal cell must play in the pathogenesis of the smoking-induced lung disorders. So what does the transcriptional signature of uh, human airway basal cells compare with that of the entire differentiated epithelium tell us? The transcriptome is the output from our genes, and so our airway basal cells and all our other cells within the airway epithelium have the same number of genes, but some of those genes are covered over and not functioning, some are functioning. And we know of the 25,000 human genes that probably in the airway epithelium at any one time, there's probably 10 to 12,000 of those genes that are functional. What we and others have discovered by looking at the transcriptome, that is the messenger RNAs of the airway epithelial cells, is that in cigarette smokers, again, normal people that we think clinically are normal, but the transcriptome is markedly different from that of non-smokers. And there are hundreds of genes that are up and down regulated in the airway epithelium of the individual that we think clinically is absolutely normal. So they have an abnormal biology. And you can think of the transcriptome as sort of a catalog biologic function of what the cell is doing. So what cigarette smoke is doing is to change the function of the cells and the output of the genes in so that the transcriptome is disordered, the biology is disordered, and that has fundamental consequences to the cells. So what does it mean to become disordered, either at the transcriptome level or the functional organization of basal cells in the epithelium? For any cell, the function of those cells is very tightly controlled in terms of what they do. It may change from minute to minute, from hour to hour, a little bit, but it's pretty well defined. The airway epithelial cells are pretty much defined in terms of what they do, as well are the alveolar cells, and they're different from brain cells or heart cells or kidney cells. So each of these cell types has a program that is, is defined by the DNA and the epigenome that covers the DNA or lets it be open, and the transcriptome, and of course the post-transcriptional uh, modifications of the proteins. By disordered means that that program is becoming dysfunctional. It is changing. It may be changing by some genes are more expressed, other genes are less expressed, some genes may be being shut off, some genes that are not normally turned on in the airway now are turned on. And you can think of it as a community of genes. So I'm sitting in New York City, and we think about traffic all the time in New York City. And so let's say there is, instead of cigarette smoking in the airway epithelium, we're talking about New York City and there's a big snowstorm. And the traffic will become disordered. Instead of the routine traffic going up the main thoroughfares and maybe some on the side streets, now let's say a car gets stuck on, on First Avenue, and so now cars start going around and they'll start going in some way. So the traffic patterns are disordered from the normal. And you can think of the transcriptome in the same way. So what is the role of, uh, of epigenetic mechanism, in particular DNA methylation and maintaining that transcriptome in the, in the airway basal cell population? Well, DNA methylation are the proteins and the modifications of those proteins that are covering the DNA. And so you can think of those as on-off switches for genes. And as the methylation changes, that gene may be less on or more on or shut off or, or, or completely turned on. 
And that is really one of the critical aspects of how cells function and how they go wrong in terms of disease. And you can think of this in the context of methylation as being one of the fundamental products of our environment. So we all understand that our risk for disease is a combination of what we inherit from our parents together with the complex environment that we're exposed to from in utero throughout our life. And cigarette smoking is part of that environment, and it changes the epigenome of the cells lining the airways, and so they function in a not normal way. Some of those changes may be irrelevant, but some of those changes may be very, very relevant. And we know that the consequences of all this, both the inherited changes in our genome together with the epigenome and other modifications for the biology of the cells, the consequences of this are in the airway epithelium, increased numbers of the basal cells, decreased numbers of ciliated cells. The ciliated cells have shorter cilia. There's increased numbers of secretory cells. There's the development of squamous metaplasia, which is these flat sort of cells that are on the surface of, of the epithelium. The airway epithelium becomes more leaky. All of those things are the consequence of the environment, in this case cigarette smoke, impacting on the genome, and the epigenome plays a significant role in that. Uh, talk a bit about uh, progenitor cell fatigue and how these epigenetic mechanisms may, uh, may play into progenitor cell fatigue. One of the interesting observations that my colleagues and I have made recently is now that we can get the basal cells. So we, we get the basal cells by fiber optic bronchoscopy, and we can isolate the airway basal cells from the cells that we get from uh, brushing. And we can do that in large airways, uh, down to about the fourth order. But now we can get down all the way to the uh, smaller airways in the 10th to 12th order bronchi. So we can isolate the basal cells. And if you take those basal cells, which are, as I said before, the stem progenitor cells, and you put those on what's called air-liquid interface, basically it's putting them on a basement membrane equivalent and exposing them to air is it's been known for some time that those cells will differentiate over a period of about four weeks into a fully mucociliary differentiated epithelium. One of the interesting observations that we've made in the last few years is that if we take basal cells from non-smokers and compare that to basal cells of smokers and compare that to basal cells of COPD smokers, it turns out that if you're a basal cell from a COPD smoker, you can't differentiate with the same success rate, at least in the cell culture, than can a non-smoker. So if we take non-smoker basal cells, 95% of those samples will become a, a fully differentiated epithelium. If we take basal cells from smokers, then only about 70% or 80% of them will make it to a fully differentiated epithelium. And then if we take basal cells from COPD smokers, only about 50% of them will make it to uh, become a fully differentiated epithelium. So they get worn out. And you can think about this in the context of here are these basal cells in vivo in the individual who are exposed to the cigarette smoke. We know from the classic work of Auerbach 50 years ago that there's hyperplasia or increased numbers of these cells that are turning over more. And you could imagine that they'd begin to get worn out. So it's, it sort of makes sense that they may get fatigued and they just can't do their job as stem progenitor cells. How about the impact of, uh, of aging or, or senescence on this, uh, this fatigue state, even irrespective uh, of smoking? 
Well, you know, all cells, and stem progenitor cells, are certainly in this category, have a certain uh, ability to do their thing. And they can only uh, proliferate a certain number of times. They can only make ciliated cells and secretory cells a certain number of times. As we get older, we know that our airways begin to function in a less normal fashion. We know from routine lung function, of course, that age uh, is part of the prediction equations. And so as we get older, our airway function, as measured by the FEV1, FEV1 force bottle capacity, decreases in interest And part of that is that the airway epithelium is contributing to it, is the airway epithelium is not doing its job in the same normal fashion. And so I think that this fatigue has a real consequence in terms of aging, and we've also observed that the ability of the cells to proliferate is decreasing. One of the critical enzymes in that is telomerase, which uh, the telomeres at the end of our chromosomes get shorter and shorter every time the cell proliferates, and it can get replenished. But if this series of gene products functioning to keep the telomeres constant uh, are not functioning normally, then there is increased aging. And, and so I, I think accelerated aging is playing a significant role. Tell me a bit about the, the significance of basal cells talking and listening, as you refer to it in your perspective piece, uh, within the setting of the COPD inflammatory microenvironment. Well, when we first start getting interested in basal cells, we started thinking them only as stem progenitor cells because that's a fundamental role that they play. And many investigators, particularly uh, those who study uh, you know, rodents, have done a terrific job in terms of understanding the, the role of the basal cell as stem progenitor cells. But now that we can isolate the human uh, basal cells, what's become obvious to us is that they are biologic cells like any other cells, and they secrete various mediators, and they also have receptors for various mediators. And so what we have found is that the basal cells are secreting a whole variety of proteins, including uh, proteins that interact with endothelial cells, interact with immune cells, interact with probably the smooth muscle cells, and interact with the other cell types in the epithelium itself. In addition, basal cells have receptors, and they can get signals from these cells. So we're beginning to think of the basal cells as part of the community of cells, not only to reproduce the epithelium, but also playing a fundamental role in the biology of the airway epithelium. I want to talk a bit more about the, uh, the omics analyses that have been performed in the context specifically now of uh, bronchogenic carcinoma and the relationship between these omics signatures uh, within the basal cells and those in bronchogenic carcinomas. We know from epidemiologic studies that COPD itself, even after you factor out cigarette smoking, that COPD itself is a risk factor for bronchogenic carcinoma. Now, perhaps that makes sense if you think of it just in a superficial way because we know that, as I mentioned before, the cells in the airway epithelium are turning over. Of course, those are the cells responsible for bronchogenic carcinoma. And so the cells are turning over more, and so you could think maybe they're making mistakes more as they're proliferating at, a, at an increased uh, rate. But what we're also finding is that uh, a good part of the signature that this disturbed transcriptional signature that you see in the smokers and then COPD smokers uh, particularly begin to express genes that are, play a role in terms of bronchogenic carcinoma. And so the most likely 
uh, consequence of that uh, in thinking about the, the increased risk for bronchogenic carcinoma is that the individual who's the cigarette smoker, they're probably already on their way to developing, if you will, bronchogenic carcinoma even very early on when they're starting to smoke. And one of the things from our laboratory that we've recognized is that the transcriptional signature of the basal cells are becoming more primitive. They are getting closer to the earlier progenitors, which are, of course, the embryonic stem cells. And so it's one of the things cigarette smoking is doing is making your basal cells more primitive and hence more susceptible to mutations that are the driver mutations for cancer. I want to ask a somewhat personal question, because I understand that you've had your genome sequenced, and I wanted to ask what that was like and, uh, and what you learned about yourself. Well, the first interesting thing was after I decided to, uh, to do that and sent off the samples to be sequenced, and I realized that it has some consequences that you need to think about. One is privacy. For example, the ApoE gene, uh, you know, if you inherit ApoE4 in your homozygote, you have a 20-fold increased risk for early-onset Alzheimer's. You really want to know that. Or do you really want to know that, you know, that you may be susceptible to a monogenic disease? Now, perhaps I'm old enough now that that doesn't matter as much for me, but for a younger person, you know, that does have consequences that for yourself and for your family. So that was one of the first things that was, I thought, interesting in terms of the thinking process. And then some of the things you learn about is ancestry. For example, I knew where my father's family was from, but I had no idea where my mother's family was from. And it turned out they were from genetically from Germany, Den Denmark, that part of the world. I also found out from my genome that I inherited a recessive uh, mutation that's irrelevant to me because I'm recessive. But that mutation, it turns out, was traced back to many, many centuries to Germany and Denmark, that part of the world. So that's probably I got that mutation from my mother's side of, the, of my genome. And interestingly, that's not relevant to me, but if I was a homozygote, I would have been dead by age three. It's a molybdenum deficiency disorder, which is only about 100 cases. So it's irrelevant to me, but it's relevant to my son Right, because he has a chance of inheriting that for me, and then who he marries is going to be relevant if she's a rare carrier as well. So those are some of the things that you learn. What I also learned was that I'm at risk for things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity, but I didn't need my genome to know that. I knew that from the family history, and we all take family histories when we see our patients, right? And so for the complex disorders, the ones we're all interested in, like diabetes, obesity, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, that's going to take a long time before those risks and uh, you know get sorted out sufficiently to be able to be in, in clinical practice. So one of the things I really learned was where the genome is today and in regard to really what can be used for. Obviously, the cancer genome is very important, but for the individual, Ancestry you can really learn. You can learn about monogenic disorders. You can learn about your pharmacogenomics a little bit, about what drugs and, and doses and adverse events. But for the complex disorders, I think it's going to take many years before that's sorted out. Thank you for, for sharing those insights. I just want to switch gears briefly uh, and talk about the future uh, of lung research and specifically any advice that you can give to junior investigators. 
Well, I was lucky to get into the lung field. I had left Massachusetts General as a house officer and went to NIH to research, and I was going to go back to Mass General as a cardiologist. I ended up as a lung doctor because uh, Don Fredrickson, who was the director of NIH, asked me to start the lung program. So I was incredibly lucky. And I found the lung field, you know, in terms of my 40-plus year career in that, to be just a wonderful field. I mean, it covers so much in terms of fantastic biology, fantastic physiology, and uh, disorders that are really important, of course, now in, in terms of the population. Thinking back, I would advise two things to, you know, young scientists, whether an MD or PhD. One is find yourself a senior mentor and pay attention. You know, uh, usually when I tell people in my group, you know, I think I have this great idea, they usually go talk to their colleagues and find out whether they say, well, Ron suggests this or that, and what do you think? But pay attention. The, the people who have been around for a while, you know, do have some good ideas sometimes, and that may help you in terms of guiding your career. The second I think I would advise is think about the big questions. It's easy to sort of get into the mode in science of, uh, well, I'm going to look at this gene or I'm going to look at this protein or this physiology, and very narrow because it's safe. But there are big questions in terms of BS. For example, in the field that I'm working in now is, you know, obviously the pathogenesis of COPD is important, but a big question is why do 80% of the people not get COPD? And what's the difference? Why can people smoke and live to 95 and never get any of these diseases? Because in understanding that, we hopefully can understand targets that will be uh, new um, drugs to be able to help protect the lungs. So I would recommend to young scientists to think about the big questions. Now, it's not necessarily you can solve them, but if you start thinking about them, you never know that when you're going to make a discovery that will be really important in terms of these big questions in, in terms of science and specifically the lung. Thank you. I think those are, are, are wonderful points of advice. We, we've covered a lot of topics here. Are, is there anything else that you'd like to, uh, to share regarding your perspective? Just in terms of, of young scientists, what I would do now, no matter whether you're going to be a physiologist, a pathologist, or biologist, the kind of thing that you and I do, genes are going to dominate. They're going to dominate all aspects of science and clinical medicine, whether you're a psychiatrist, an epidemiologist, a cardiologist, a lung doc, whatever you are, a surgeon, genetics is going to dominate over the next many, many decades. Eventually, everybody's going to have their genome sequenced. Eventually, all this data is going to be very important in terms of making decisions in terms of medicine. So I would learn about genes. I would also learn about uh, computation because you can't understand the direction that these big science in terms of su uh, studying genes and genomes and transcriptomes and so on is going unless you can at least understand the concepts uh, behind computation. And finally, if I was a young investigator in terms of the lung, despite my focus or my whole career on biology and genomics and, and gene therapy, I would learn something about physiology. I think we're losing that in our field, you know, because we focus so much on biology. But it all comes back to how the lung functions. And at least if I was starting out, I would spend some time to learn about the classic physiology because you got to put the genes together and the biology together with how the lung integrates and how it functions and that's the physiology of the lung.